side, my name is Salim Bayankor, and I, I have the privilege of being uh, a friend, a family friend of, of Gerald's. And, uh, and actually, I, I'm going to yield the floor to somebody who's known Gerald for far longer than I have for part of the introduction. So my mother, Mahnaz, is going to give some of the introduction to Gerald and, uh, and, and his, his, uh, his story. And then I'll say a couple words, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll give the uh, give the talk to to Gerald. So over to my mother for a minute, for a moment. Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> I'm truly delighted to introduce Gerald Knight this evening, particularly to those of you who do not know him. I first met Gerald in early 1972 when I went to work for him. Somehow I got this job which I was not quite qualified for, and which really, for all intents and purposes, I probably should not have been offered. But it was meant to be. First of all, I want to say that in introducing Gerald, I am in fact introducing Gerald and his wife, Margaret. As it says um, in the very modest biographical information that Gerald sent the organizers of this evening, they became Baha'is, in London in 1973. They actually investigated the Baha'i faith together. They joined the worldwide Baha'i community together at the very same time and have since always served together, including at the United Nations, which is the subject for tonight. They recognize the manifestation of God for today and his central teaching that humanity is one. As some of you know, from the early 20th century, Abdu'l-Baha, son of the uh, founder of the Baha'i faith, urged Baha'is again and again to travel to other countries to help one another, particularly in nascent communities, and to live and promote the oneness of humanity together, making every effort to demonstrate to a skeptical world an undivided solidarity and exemplary unity. Since then, many Baha'is, as what we call pioneers, from many different countries, have zigzagged across the world for many years, and the Baha'i community has continued to grow into probably the most diverse group of people in the world, all working towards one common goal. In 1975, Gerald and Margaret took to heart a letter from the Universal House of Justice the international governing body of the Baha'i community, in which it once again urged Baha'is to arise as pioneers. Not only had Gerald and Margaret accepted the oneness of humanity, which transformed their worldview, but now they turned their material lives upside down to help make this truth a reality. Gerald closed a thriving business, they sold their beautiful home, and with a young child, they left England for Fiji. Even though they were on the other side of the world, their years in Fiji brought us closer together, as part of my childhood was also spent in the South Pacific, on another island, the island of Samoa. Also here, Gerald was in business partnership, in a business partnership with my brother Sohail, who still lived in Samoa. Gerald and Margaret truly became part of our family. During their years in Fiji, in addition to their personal activities, 
Gerald served at the national level in the Baha'i administration, and Margaret established a local publishing trust for the community for Baha'i literature in Fijian. They were in Fiji until 1979, when they were asked to serve at the Baha'i International Community United Nations Office in New York, and later in Geneva until 1987. Selim will, of course, tell you more about that. Their first choice at that time was to return to Fiji, but unfortunately they were not able to do so because of the political situation there during those years. And they came back to the UK where they continued to serve with commitment and dedication. On that note, I will pass you back to Salim, who will tell you about the theme of the evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'll just finish the introduction with a, with a few words that are, uh, as, as, uh, as my mom said, uh, particularly relevant to the theme this evening. So when Gerald and Margaret joined the, uh, the Baha'i International Community at the United Nations, their principal focus was the human rights portfolio, uh, and especially the, uh, the, the defense of the persecuted Baha'is in, uh, in Iran at, uh, at the time, in the, in the early, very early 1980s. This was the beginning of the revolution in Iran, the 1979 uh, Islamic Revolution. And the persecution of the Baha'is was at its height, and many Baha'is were being executed by the, uh, by the new government. Gerald traveled the world to bring this situation to the attention of many governments, and uh, as well as representing the Baha'is of the United Nations. This, together with Margaret's work in liaising with the Baha'i administration, drafting statements to be delivered at the UN, and documenting the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran, were instrumental in getting the first UN resolutions passed that called on Iran to stop its atrocities against the Baha'i community in Iran. We will never know, of course, but no, no doubt many lives were saved through this pressure being placed on the Iranian government. Because although the persecution of the Baha'is continues and is still heavy, the killings themselves tapered off significantly after those early years. And, uh, and, and on that note, I'm delighted to, uh, to hand the, uh, the screen over to Gerald, who uh, we're all waiting to hear from. And uh, thank you very much, and thank you, Gerald, as well. Thank you. My name is Salim, uh, and thank you also uh, to the organizers um, for inviting me to speak on this subject. Um, it's a subject that I is very close to my heart, um, and of course there are many I note in the audience today who probably know much more about the United Nations and its place. Uh, in the context of the Baha'i writings than I do, but I will, I will do my best. What I'm going to cover is the emergence of the League of Nations and its inevitable failure, the creation of the UN and its family of organizations at the end of the Second World War, and the progress made in international cooperation in something we call the century of light, which I'll explain later. I'll close by summarizing how the world has, in, in the last 20 years, taken backward steps and how these may be the precursor to the progress which we will eventually be made towards a durable world peace. I will include some personal insights from my time at the Baha'i Community UN offices and deal more generally with the role we, the BIC UN officers have 
in engaging in a discourse on a range of important subjects with the UN system. I'll also, as Salim mentioned, describe the role of the Baha'i Tashkent community in responding to the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran since the creation of the Islamic Republic in 1979. So, what is the historical context for uh, my talk tonight? Well, it breaks down into four parts. First of all, 150 years ago, Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, and four Baha'is, the latest but not the last manifestation of God. Baha'u'llah wrote letters to the kings and rulers of the world in the middle of the 19th century. And let's not forget that this was a world ruled by a very small number of extremely powerful individuals. Then we go to the period after Baha'u'llah's passing, between 1892 and 1921, when Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, and leader of the faith from his father's passing in, 19, in 1892, until his own passing in 1921. And we'll deal with his comments on the creation of the League of Nations, an organization which at its founding had 42 members. So the world had grown from a handful of powerful individuals to a world largely, largely dominated by 42 governments. Then we go to the period from 1921 to 1957. This was when Shoghi Effendi, the grandson of Abdu'l-Bahá, who led, he, he led the Baha'i world between the two world wars and through the early years of the United Nations. And when it was founded, the United Nations had 51 members. And then we go to the period from 1963 until today. The Universal House of Justice, the international governing body of the Baha'i faith, has led the Baha'i world since 1963 and has seen UN membership increase from 108 to 193. So I'd like now to take you through some of the statements about world peace and world government made by these leaders of the Baha'i faith during the last 150 years. When we get to the First World War, I'd like to emphasize how much importance the leaders of our faith placed on the League of Nations, and even more, after the Second World War, how much attention was paid to the United Nations by both Shoghi Effendi and the Universal House of Justice. So we start in the middle of the 19th century when the prevailing characteristic was nationalism. And I will, ask, I will now ask Salim to read some words of, of Baha'u'llah written 150 years ago. Be united, O kings of the earth, for thereby will the tempest of discord be stilled amongst you, 
and your peoples find rest, if ye be of them that comprehend. Should any one among you take up arms against another, rise ye all against him, for this is not but manifest justice. Then in another passage, Baha'u'llah refers to a gathering of world leaders in the following words. The time must come when the imperative necessity for the holding of a vast and all-embracing assemblage of men will be universally realized. The rulers and kings of the earth must needs attend it, and participating in its deliberations must consider such ways and means as will lay the foundations of the world's great peace amongst men. Such a peace demanded that the great powers should resolve for the sake of the tranquility of the peoples of the earth to be fully reconciled among themselves. Should any king take up arms against another, all should unitedly arise and prevent him. If this be done, the nations of the world will no longer require any armaments except for the purpose of preserving the security of their realms and of maintaining internal order within their territories. This will ensure the peace and composure of every people, government, and nation. So later, Abdu'l-Bahá, as I said, the son of Baha'u'lláh, the leader of the faith, um, uh, sorry, the leader, Abdu'l-Bahá became the leader of the faith when his father passed away in 1892. And he said the following. True civilization will unfurl its banner in the midmost heart of the world whenever a certain number of its distinguished and high-minded sovereigns, the shining exemplars of devotion and determination, shall, for the good and happiness of all mankind, arise with firm resolve and clear vision to establish the cause of universal peace. They must make the cause of peace the object of general consultation and seek by every means in their power to establish a union of the nations of the world. They must conclude a binding treaty and establish a covenant, the provisions of which shall be sound, inviolable, and definite. They must proclaim it to all the world and obtain for it the sanction of all the human race. This supreme and noble undertaking, the real source of the peace and well-being of all the world, should be regarded as sacred by all that dwell on earth. All the forces of humanity must be mobilized to ensure the stability and permanence of this most great covenant. In this all-embracing pact, the limits and frontiers of, every and of each and every nation should be clearly fixed. The principles underlying the relations of governments toward one another definitely, definitely laid down, and all international agreements and obligations ascertained. In like manner, the size of the armaments of every government should be strictly limited. For if the preparations for war and the military forces of any nation should be allowed to increase, they will arouse the suspicion of others. This fundamental principle underlying this solemn pact should be so fixed that if any a government later violates any of its provisions, all the governments on earth should arise to reduce it to utter submission. Nay, the human race as a whole should resolve with every power at its disposal to destroy that government. Should this greatest of all remedies be applied to the sick body of the world, it will assuredly recover from its ills and will remain eternally safe and secure. Thank you, Salim. So that, that gives us 
a small sample of the wisdom that the world heard through Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha. So the scene was set. The guidance, the direction was given by their words. But the world's leaders did not listen. So now we come to the 20th century, which Abdul Baha had described as the century of light. And we come very soon to the emergence of the League of Nations, the first attempt by the governments of the world to create a mechanism for world peace. We should remember that the context was a world dominated by European nations through three centuries of imperialist exploitation of the rest of the planet. Abdu'l-Bahá took keen interest in efforts to bring into existence a new international order. In particular, he encouraged the Central Organization for Durable Peace at The Hague, and his messages to that organization are well known to many of us. Soon after the League was founded in 2019, Abdu'l-Bahá praised its formation, but he very quickly warned, quote, it is incapable of establishing universal peace, unquote. He contrasted it with the Supreme Tribunal foretold by Baha'u'llah and described the League as, quote, limited and restricted, unquote. As many of you know, the vision for the League of Nations had been to a large extent inspired by President Woodrow Wilson of the United States. It had been hoped that this institution could adjust future disputes between nations and harmonize international affairs. Sadly, the League was stillborn. The Vindictive Peace Treaty, imposed by the Allied powers on their defeated enemies at the end of the First World War, war, war succeeded only, as both Abdu'l-Bahá and Shoghi Effendi have pointed out, in planting the seeds of another far more terrible conflict. The reasons for the failure of the League are complex. The ruinous reparations demanded of the vanquished, and the injustice that required them to accept the full guilt for a war for which all parties had been, to one degree or another, responsible, were among the factors that led to the embrace of totalitarianism by demoralized peoples in Europe. But the tipping point for the complete failure of the League was the fact that its main proponent, the United States, did not ever become a member. Given its weaknesses, the League struggled to make an impact during the years between the two world wars. In 1928, uh, the League took up residence in its new headquarters, the Palais des Nations in Geneva, which later became, and still is, the headquarters of the Human Rights Secretariat of the United Nations. And it continues to host most human rights meetings of the organization. Notwithstanding the weaknesses and the failure of the League of Nations, 
Chogi Effendi, in the years leading up to the Second World War, drew attention to, quote, the most significant landmarks in its checkered history, unquote, among, among which was its decision to impose collective sanctions upon a member state which the League deemed to have committed an act of aggression. I'll ask Salim to read a quotation from Shoghi Effendi. For the first time in the history of humanity, the system of collective security foreshadowed by Baha'u'llah and explained by Abdu'l-Baha has been seriously envisaged, discussed, and tested. For the first time in history, it has been officially recognized and publicly stated that for this system of collective security to be effectively established, strength and elasticity are both essential. Strength involving the use of an adequate force to ensure the efficacy of the proposed system, and elasticity to enable the machinery that has been devised to meet the legitimate needs and aspirations of its aggrieved upholders. For the first time in human history, tentative efforts have been exerted by the nations of the world to assume collective responsibility and to supplement their verbal pledges by actual preparation for collective action. And again, for the first time in history, a movement of public opinion has manifested itself in support of the verdict, which the leaders and representatives of nations have pronounced, and for securing collective action in pursuance of such a decision. So now let's turn to um, see what the House of Justice, the Universal House of Justice, said about the League. The establishment of the League on 18th January um, 1919 at the Paris Peace Conference has been described by the House of Justice as a highly significant milestone in the process of emerging world order and as the first of three historical moments in the 20th century when it seemed that the human race was reaching for real lasting peace. The second event was at the conclusion of the Second World War, when the United Nations Organization was formed from the ashes of the League and a system of international economic institutions came into being. And historic advances were made relating to human rights and international law. In rapid succession, many territories under col colonial rule became independent nations. And the number of United Nations member states grew from 51 in 1945 to 193 today. The third moment in the 20th century, identified by the Universal House of Justice as being of historic significance, was the end of the period of open hostility between the two major power blocks, which we all know familiarly as the Cold War. It brought humanity perilously close to nuclear war, but its peaceful termination in 1990 was an occasion for relief and also gave rise to calls for the establishment of a new global order. So the United Nations, when it was founded and how and what, is, what it's achieved. 
The main source for my comments is a publication which many of you will, with which many, many of you will be familiar. And I'm not a historian, but as a history of the 20th century written in the context of the evolution of mankind, it will surely be an invaluable reference for future historians. I am, of course, referring to the Century of Light prepared under the supervision of the Universal House of Justice and published in 2002. I'd like to ask Salim to read a very uh, small part um, of the foreword of the document. The conclusion of the 20th century provides Baha'is with a unique vantage point. During the past hundred years, our world underwent changes far more profound than any in its preceding history, changes that are, for the most part, little understood by the present generation. These same hundred years saw the Baha'i cause emerge from obscurity, demonstrating on a global scale the unifying power with which its divine origin has endowed it. As the century drew to its close, the convergence of these two historical developments became increasingly apparent. Now, during the Second World War, Shoghi Effendi said that the war should be regarded as, quote, the essential prerequisite to world unification, unquote. With the end of the hostilities, we read in the Century of Light, it gradually became apparent that a fundamental shift in consciousness was underway throughout the world. And later, that barriers to blocking an emerging conviction about the oneness of humankind were at last giving way. The years immediately following 1945 witnessed advances in framing a new social order that went far beyond the brightest hopes of earlier decades. Most important of all was the willingness of national governments to create a new system of international order and to endow it with the peacekeeping authority so tragically denied to the defunct League. So this was the setting for the birth of the new organization. Meeting in San Francisco in April 1945, in the state where Abdu'l-Bahá had declared more than 40 years earlier, may the first flag of international peace be upraised in this state. Delegates of 50 nations adopted the United Nations Charter. Ratification by 51 nations followed in October 1945. And the first General Assembly met in January 1946 in London. In October 1949, the cornerstone of the United Nations permanent seat was laid in New York City, a city which had been hailed by Abdu'l-Bahá on his visit to the United States in 1912 as, quote, the City of the Covenant. The years that followed saw a series of events which transformed the planet. 1948 saw the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. For the first time in history, the leaders of a sovereign nation, nation were brought to public trial for the crimes perpetrated in the death camps of the Nazi regime. 
this demonstrated for the first time that the, quote, fetish of national sovereignty, unquote, had recognizable and enforceable limits. These post-war years also saw the dissolution of the great empires. Described in the Century of Light as, quote, these antiquated systems of political oppression, unquote. As a result, the peoples of the world found themselves with a place to stand in dignity, a forum in which to express the concerns that most affected them. A corner had been turned that left behind six or more millennia of history, said the Century of Light. I don't have time tonight to deal with the changes that took place in the world during these years, but the magnitude of the change which took place is best symbolized, according to the Century of Light, by the fact that at the end of the century, the Secretary General of the United Nations, the Chief Administrative Officer, was from Ghana. And his two immediate predecessors were from Peru and Egypt. There have been nine Secretary Generals of the United Nations. And as I've already mentioned, the Secretary General is the Chief Administrative Officer who acts as the spokesman for the organization and guides and directs the activities of the UN Secretariat, which carries out the decisions arrived at by the governments, now 193, which are the United Nations members. The UN is the largest intergovernmental organization in the world. There are many other specialist bodies, some of which are called specialized agencies. Best known are perhaps UNICEF, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, UNESCO, the World Food Programme, and the ILO, the International Labour Organization. The army of men and women drawn from virtually every culture, race, and nation on earth who serve these agencies represent a planetary civil service whose impressive accomplishments are indicative of the degree of cooperation that can be attained even under discouraging conditions. So where are we in terms of achievements by the United Nations as we approach the 75th anniversary later this year of the first meeting of the General Assembly? According to the Universal House of Justice, quote, the physical unification of the planet in our time and the awakening aspirations of the mass of its inhabitants have at last produced the conditions that permit achievement of the ideal. To this effort, the governments of the world have contributed the founding of the United Nations Organization with all its great blessings, with all its regrettable shortcomings. So this is the General Assembly Hall, quite a well-known site. This hall has seen many historic moments since it hosted its first General Assembly meeting in 1952. Because whilst the new headquarters was being built, the General Assembly had met in different locations 
including its first meeting in 1945, as I've already mentioned, in the Methodist Central Hall in London. Its main temporary home for those years, however, was Lake Success on Long Island, east of New York City. Most heads of state and government throughout the world have stood at this podium and addressed the world gathering. This happens once a year at the opening of each new session of the assembly. Forgive me a small digression, but one of the more notable heads of state to stand at this podium was El Cameron, the famous black actor who played a dictator who was the head of state of an African country in the film, The Interpreter. Most of you will know that sadly, Earl passed away just over a week ago. Earl was well known to many of us because he became a Baha'i over 50 years ago in the 1960s. In 2016, he gave a memorable interview to Samira Ahmed, BBC journalist, who asked him about his role in this film, The Interpreter. Earl said, and many of you may have seen this, it's been circulating around the Baha'is in the last few days. Earl said that the role was very important to him because as a Baha'i, he had been thrilled to be in the General Assembly Hall, imagining all the heads of state and government who had been there discussing world affairs. No doubt many of you have visited the UN and may have been in this hall, and you may understand Earl's emotions. I experienced the same emotions as Earl every time I had the opportunity to be in that hall. When we had visitors from overseas, especially from far-flung small countries such as Fiji or Samoa, we would take them into the hall, assuming that there was no meeting taking place at the time, and their greatest thrill was to stand at the podium, or perhaps an even bigger thrill, sit in the seat of their own country. Salim, you wanted to say something? Yes, thank you, Gerald. It was just a very interesting thought that occurred to me as we were uh, preparing, as we were discussing your, your remarks and, uh, and just preparing the, uh, the, the, the presentation. And it, it, it's interesting just to reflect on the, 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 the distance, the gulf between the sentiment that Earl had and many people have when they get the chance to visit the uh, hall of the General Assembly, um, the, the awe they might feel. Um, at this place where the leaders of the world come together and their delegates come together to try to address the, the challenges facing humanity. The, the gulf between that sense of awe and then the actual outcomes that sometimes uh, we receive from, from that uh, gathering. And, uh, and I think it's just a, it's, it's an interesting reminder uh, of, uh, of, the, of the range of, of work, the amount of work that uh, this effort um, to, to create this United Nations still uh, has ahead of it in order to meet the uh, aspirations of all these people of the world, which are so well crystallized when people get a chance to actually be in that room. So I thought I'd just add that, but it's a very interesting uh, uh, bit of a contrast there. Thank you, Salim. So having um, diverted slightly from the subject, uh, we go back to the shortcomings of the United Nations, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, which these shortcomings are far too numerous to describe here. But permit me to highlight the most obvious, at least to me, and the one which makes the task of the Secretary General an impossible one 
and that is the veto power and the preeminence of national sovereignty in the Security Council. Whatever the advice of the Secretary General, and whatever the will of the majority of the member states, all it takes is for one of five countries to exercise the veto and a decision or action is thwarted. So when people criticize the United Nations for a failure to act in a crisis, they should recognize that more often than not, one at least of the five permanent members of the Security Council, the United States, Russia, China, France, or the United Kingdom has exercised their veto. Salim, you were going to add something to that. Yes, uh, just also a quick, uh, interesting point of history that the that the the way these veto uh, the, the way these vetoes are are, are exercised fall along uh, these great power blocks that uh, that have been more or less fixed since the end of the Second World War. So the U.S., France, and the U.K. would, in general, uh, with some exceptions, vote along similar lines. Uh, Russia would vote along its line. China would vote along its line. And these are the same polarities are the same blocks that are, are now pulling the multilateral order apart again in our time and, uh, and, and really um, threatening to undermine this uh, internationalism that you're, you're telling us about. So I think that's something that we come to later on in your presentation. But I thought that uh, just making the point that for 70 years, these blocks have existed and now they're becoming stronger again is, uh, is worth remembering. Thank you. So where do we go from here? And again, a quotation from the Century of Light. The physical, sorry, is that the right quote now? Slide 15, uh, Salim, I think you've... Yes, oh, I've, I'm one short, yes, sorry. That's it. Somewhere ahead lie the further great changes that will eventually impel acceptance of the principle of world government itself. The United Nations does not possess such a mandate, nor is there anything in the current discourse of political leaders that seriously envisions so radical a restructuring in the administration of the affairs of the planet. That it will come about in due course, Baha'u'llah has made unmistakably clear. That yet greater suffering and disillusionment will be required to impel humanity to this great leap forward appears, alas, equally clear. Its establishment will require national governments and other centers of power to surrender to international determination unconditionally and irreversibly the full measure of overriding authority implicit in the word government. So now I'd like to turn to the role of the Baha'i International Community's United Nations officers. From the outset of the United Nations, Shoghi Effendi was keen that the faith's representatives should engage with that body. In 1948, with the encouragement of Shoghi Effendi, the National Spiritual Assembly of the United States and Canada submitted to the United Nations a document entitled A Baha'i Declaration on Human Obligations and Rights. A year, late, a year later, the eight national assemblies then in existence secured from the new organization accreditation for, quote, the Baha'i international community as an international non-governmental organization. So for 20, nearly 20 years, the relationship of the faith with the United Nations was in the hands of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States. First, 
during the time of Shoghi Effendi and from 1963 um, after the election of the Universal House of Justice. A highly significant event took place in 1955 when Shoghi Effendi was still alive. The Baha'i International Community, at that time represented by 12 national assemblies, submitted recommendations for revision of the UN Charter. And in the letter to the Secretary General, who was then Doug Hammarskjöld, uh, the following was said. In submitting its recommendations, the Baha'i International Community is concerned with the desperate condition into which the nations and peoples of the world have fallen. The seeds of destruction are sown within as well as without the present membership of the United Nations. No minor and legalistic adjustment of the charter, the Baha'is are convinced, can restore the supremacy of moral law in the conduct of human affairs, nor seize control of events from the chaos which engulfs mankind. The Baha'is appeal to every enlightened and responsible statesman associated with the United Nations to grasp before it is too late this providential opportunity to create a political organism commensurate with the new and unprecedented character of the world in our time. So just as the kings and rulers of the world had ignored the call of Baha'u'llah nearly 100 years before, so the governments of the United Nations ignored this submission. Then in 1967, in terms of the evolution of the role of the Baha'i community, a, a major step forward was, was taken in, in, in uh, the development of the relationship with the United Nations. Universal House of Justice decided to take direct responsibility for the Baha'i International Community UN Office and also decided that the status of the faith in the world justified applying for recognition by the United Nations as a non-governmental organization with consultative status. At the same time, the House of Justice decided that the volume and scope of the work of the Baha'i International Community justified the appointment of a full-time representative. Mrs. Mildred Motahede, who had performed devoted part-time service as the first Baha'i International Community representative at the United Nations, asked to be relieved of the responsibility of the House of Justice appointed Dr. Victor de Arujo. So here is Mildred, uh, Mildred doing what um, the tourists do and what we all did when the conference rooms are empty. We go and sit in the delegates' chairs and that's Mildred on the far left of the photograph. I'd been serving at the Baha'i International Community United Nations office for a year or so in 1980 when I received a call from Mrs. Motahede. I knew who she was, but I'd never met her. She was a distinguished American Baha'i who was, as I had already mentioned, the first representative of the UN appointed by and working closely with Shoghi Effendi. Following his passing, she was elected as a member of the International Baha'i Council for the two years leading up to the first election of the Universal House of Justice in 1963. She was also a very successful and formidable businesswoman. She founded Motahede and Company, a designer and supplier of luxury porcelain. To get back to my summons to her apartment, which was a few floors above our office in 866 UN Plaza, the uh, photograph there shows you the Baha'i International Community Office, which was then and still is now in that building, uh, looking directly across at the, main, at the main buildings of the United Nations. 
her apartment was just a few floors above in one of the apartment blocks. Um, she welcomed me warmly in her apartment. She served tea in beautiful China. Without further ado, she said, young man, I want to talk to you about some of the things you're doing. I have some suggestions. She made her suggestions. And as tactfully as I could, I explained that the way we were working was in accordance with the guidelines of the Universal House of Justice, that I did not think we could follow her suggestions. She listened carefully to my explanations and seemed satisfied. From then on, my wife, our two children and I were frequent visitors to her country home in Connecticut and much enjoyed our relationship. She used to cook beautiful food, one of her recipes we still enjoy today, and we always refer to her as we're eating it. So back to the emergence of the Baha'i International Community. From the beginning of its status as a, an NGO with consultative status, the Baha'i International Community played an energetic role in United Nations Affairs, an activity that won it much appreciation was a program carried out through the expanding network of Baha'i Assemblies to provide the public with information about the United Nations itself. So this work was extremely successful and won, won a lot of admiration for the Baha'is. Um, the influence and expertise developed the, during these years, working with UNEP, work, uh, with the United Nations Environment Program, working with um, UNICEF, um, was very uh, clearly demonstrated in 1955 and 1962 when the Baha'i Tash community was successful in securing United Nations intervention on behalf of the believers suffering persecution in Iran and Morocco, respectively. The decade from 1970 to 1980 saw a great increase in the range and depth of cooperation with UN bodies, especially the ones I've just mentioned. The Economic and Social Council was one, the UNICEF and, and the United Nations Environment Program. BIC attended meetings on a wide range of subjects, ranging from human rights through to the law of the sea, the status of women, the environment, etc. At most meetings, the the, the, the Baha'i Tash community would offer the Baha'i view on the matter under discussion, drawing on the Baha'i writings as appropriate. As a result of all this painstaking work, government delegates and United Nations personnel became increasingly aware, not only of the existence of a worldwide Baha'i community, but also of the Baha'i view of the need for a new spiritual and moral foundation for the construction of a world civilization. Now I turn to the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran and, 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 and the defense. In 1980, the work of the BIC, as I'll call it, Baha'i Tash community, shortened to BIC, the work of the BIC in the area of the defense of the persecuted Baha'is in Iran took on a new dimension. The creation of the Islamic Republic provided the Shia clergy with the opportunity to seek the extermination of the community, of the Baha'i community, in the land of its birth. The scope of this talk does not allow me to do justice to the remarkable reaction of the Baha'is in Iran to this oppression. However, it is too important to pass over it without a brief reference. Sentiments of non-Baha'i observers to the behavior of the persecuted Baha'is was to become one of the most powerful forces 
propelling the faith from obscurity. We read in the Century of Light. Beyond a revulsion at the senseless brutality of the persecution, a growing body of foreign opinion has been profoundly moved by the response of the Iranian Baha'is. The 20th century has, alas, been overwhelmed by the suffering of countless victims of oppression. What made the Baha'i situation unique was the attitude adopted by those who endured the suffering. The Iranian believers refused to accept the all too familiar role of victims. Like the founders of the faith before them, they took moral charge of the great issue between them and their adversaries. It was they, not revolutionary courts or revolutionary guards, who quickly set the terms of the encounter. And this extraordinary achievement affected not only the hearts, but the minds of those who observed the situation from outside the Baha'i faith. The persecuted community neither attacked its oppressors nor sought political advantage from the crisis, nor did its Baha'i defenders in other lands call for the dismantling of the Iranian constitution, much less for revenge. All demanded only justice, the recognition of the rights guaranteed by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, endorsed by the community of nations, ratified by the Iranian government, and many of them embodied even in clauses of the Islamic constitution. So then, the office of the BIC in New York was charged by the House of Justice with playing a leading role in the campaign which unfolded throughout the world in defense of the persecuted Iranian Baha'is. Working directly with the representatives of governments and the Secretariat at the United Nations, and in close collaboration with many, many national spiritual assemblies, high national assemblies throughout the world, we sought to bring pressure to bear on the Iranian authorities. The first international body which responded directly to our appeals was a body of independent human rights experts working under the aegis of the Commission on Human Rights, which on 10 September 1980, adopted a resolution expressing, quote, its profound concern for the safety of the recently arrested members of the National Administrative Council of the Baha'is of Iran, unquote, and requested the Secretary General of the United Nations, quote, to transmit this concern to the government of Iran. This was followed just over a week later by the adoption at the European Parliament meeting in Strasbourg of a resolution which condemned the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran and called upon the European Community Foreign Ministers to make urgent representations to the Iranian authorities to, quote, put an end to the persecution of the members of the Baha'i community, unquote. I've included the European Parliament resolution because together with subsequent re resolutions of the same body and of the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly, it helped greatly to persuade European governments to address the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran in the UN meetings which followed. These two photographs don't do justice to the importance of these events, and I'm sorry for the quality. Um, I, I, just took, I just photographed them from Baha'i world. In the weeks leading up to the meetings, we worked closely with national Baha'i assemblies in Europe, who in turn worked with local assemblies in their respective countries to brief members of these parliaments on events in Iran. This meant that during the days we were attending the meetings and talking face to face with the parliamentarians, they were acutely aware that Baha'is in their own locality were feeling the suffering of their co-believers 
in Iran. It was a remarkable experience for me working with these representatives from the nine countries who were then members of the European um, community and the many more countries who were members of the Council of Europe. The top one is the picture of the um, European Parliament and the bottom one below is the Council of Europe. Sadly, some of the people in these photographs are no longer with us. Among those who've passed away, you will know probably Philip Hainsworth, who represented the UK at the meeting, a lady called Leah Nice from Belgium in the center of the top photograph, um, Mary Hardy from the United Kingdom, and Ge Giovanni Valerio, then secretary of the National Baha'i Assembly of Italy, who soon afterwards recru was recruited as a Baha'i international community representative in Geneva, working with Mashid Fasio, also in the delegation to the Council of Europe in the bottom picture. Um, there are other names that some of you may know, um, but I'll move quickly on now um, to the Commission on Human Rights. And the first resolution of the Commission on Human Rights was adopted on the 4th of March, 1982 in Geneva. And there followed over the next few years an intensive campaign at UN, UN human rights meetings to bring pressure to bear on the government of Iran. At the same time, the case was attracting considerable considerable publicity in newspapers, magazines, and broadcast media throughout the world. Again, quoting from the Century of Light. Apart, <clears throat> excuse me, apart from the support thus lent to the efforts to secure effective intervention at the Human Rights Commission, such publicity had the effect of introducing, usually for the first time, and to an audience of tens of millions of people, accurate and appreciative information about Baha'i teachings and belief. Both the publicity and the campaign being carried on through the United Nations system provided influential officials around the world with a sustained opportunity to judge for themselves both the teachings of the cause and the character of the Baha'i community. It's important to mention here that the results at the United Nations were not the result only of the activities of the BIC representatives. We were working closely with approximately 100 national Baha'i assemblies throughout the world to coordinate the briefing activities. As local Baha'is interacted with their local parliamentarians, so national assemblies worked with their governments in national capitals, and those of us working at the UN in New York and Geneva engaged with ambassadors at UN meetings and in their permanent missions. All the above activities, and many others, too, too numerous to mention here, did not bring an end to the persecution, but it did ensure that everything which happened to the Baha'is was in the full glare of international attention. This slowed and eventually halted the frequent executions of Baha'is. Nevertheless, the persecution of the Baha'is still continues, mainly in the form of arrest and imprisonment, they're barred from holding government jobs. Their shops and other businesses are routinely closed. They're discriminated against by officials at all levels. Young Baha'is are denied university education. As a result, the United Nations system maintains its monitoring of Iran and adopts resolutions every year at the General Assembly to maintain the pressure on the government. 
I'll just mention the International Labour Organization, which is one of the specialized agencies I mentioned earlier, because it has repeatedly called on the government of Iran to explain workplace discrimination against Baha'is. An ILO committee in the last few years expressed deep concern over continuing economic and educational discrimination against Baha'is in Iran. Now I'd like to turn to a very exciting time um, in the Baha'i world and at the United Nations for the Baha'is. And it was the occasion of the International Year of Peace, which was proclaimed by the United Nations uh, in 1986. The response of the Universal House of Justice in late 1985 was to release a statement entitled, The Promise of World Peace, addressed to the whole of humankind, in which in unprovocative but uncompromising terms, asserted Baha'i confidence in the advent of international peace as the next stage in the evolution of society. The global scope of the statement came, in, came into focus when a specially inscribed copy was presented on the 22nd of November 1985 to the Secretary General of the United Nations, Javier Perez de Cuellar, by Amatul Baha'u'llah Hanum, who was the widow of Shoghi Effendi. She represented the Universal House of Justice on many, many important occasions. She discussed with the Secretary General some of the central issue, issues with which the statement deals. It was a befitting coincidence that the presentation took place during the week in which the General Assembly adopted the historic resolution calling on the government of Iran to observe the rights of its citizens, including the Baha'i community. It was the first occasion on which a persecuted minority had been mentioned by name in such a resolution by this world tribunal. During her extended visit to New York, the purpose of which was to abstain, obtain maximum exposure for the promise of world peace, Ria Hanum also gave a press briefing to UN correspondents from around the world and attended a series of other events, including a lunch for ambassadors. Uh, uh, Ria Hanum is pictured here with the ambassadors of Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago on, on the left of the photograph and on the right, the ambassador of Barbados. We don't have a photo of the press briefing, but here's a photo of Ria Hanum and I preparing for it. In many respects, we read in the Century of Light, the promise of world peace may be said to have set the agenda for Baha'i interaction with the United Nations in the years since 1985. The BIC had built an excellent reputation in UN circles over the years, but in the last decade of the 20th century, it became one of the most influential non-governmental organizations. Recognized for being entirely non-partisan, it has increasingly been, been trusted as a mediating voice in international discourse. On the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the United Nations, the BIC made its second submission for a comprehensive new approach to the ordering of human affairs. More than charter revision, turning point for all nations was the name of the uh, statement. It urged world leaders to address the pressing need for world integration. And one quote from that statement. It was the devastation of World Wars I and II that gave birth to the League of Nations and the United Nations respectively. Whether future accomplishments are also to be reached after similarly unimaginable horrors 
or embraced through an act of consultative will, is the choice before all who inhabit the earth. Failure to take decisive action would be unconscionably irresponsible. So during the latter years of the century, the political leaders of the world met at a number of important world conferences. A review of the agendas of these gatherings shows how closely they mirrored the major teachings of the Baha'i faith. At the close of the century, a series of international gatherings was held at the UN in New York, one of which concluded that, quote, we are one human family in all our diversity, living on one common homeland and sharing a just, sustainable and peaceful world, guided by universal principles of democracy. These gatherings culminated in a summit meeting of 149 heads of state and government in September 2000, at which the representative of the Baha'i community was given the high honor of acting as spokesperson for over 1,000 non-governmental organizations. The summit resolution signed by every participant read as follows. We solemnly affirm, we solemnly reaffirm on this historic occasion that the United Nations is the indispensable common house of the entire human family through which we will seek to realize our universal aspirations for peace, cooperation, and development. We therefore pledge our unstinting support for these common objectives and our determination to achieve them. So in concluding this series of historic world gatherings, the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time, Kofi Annan of Ghana, said to the world's leaders gathered in the General Assembly building at the UN, it it lies, it lies in your, in your power. power. Sorry, go on, Sally. Sorry, Joe. Sorry. It lies in your power, and therefore it is your responsibility to reach the goals that you have defined. Only you can determine whether the United Nations rises to the challenge. I personally have no doubt that Mr. Annan, Mr. Annan was bitterly disappointed by the events which unfolded during his second term of office in the early years of the present century. The challenge was intensified and led in the words of the Universal House of Justice in its letter to the Baha'i world on 18 January 2019, quote, to re retreat from the promising steps forward with which the previous century had closed. And in the same letter we read, and the will to engage in international collective action which 20 years ago represented a powerful strain of thinking among world leaders, has been cowed, assailed by resurgent forces of racism, nationalism, and factionalism. Thus do the forces of disintegration regroup and gain ground. So be it. The unification of humanity is unstoppable by any human force. The tumult raised by the contending peoples of the earth threatens to drown out the voices of those noble-minded souls in every society who call for an end to conflict and struggle. As long as that call goes unheeded, there is no reason to doubt that the world's current state of disorder and confusion will worsen, possibly with catastrophic consequences, until a chastened humanity sees fit to take another significant step, perhaps this time decisive, towards enduring peace. I hope that I've managed to show how Baha'i institutions have sought to encourage progress towards world peace and a new international order. I have also, I hope, demonstrated how much importance the Universal House of Justice 
gives to the work of its United Nations officers. These officers focus on areas which contribute to the construction of a more peaceful and just global order. These areas are the equality of men and women, human rights, community building, youth as protagonists of constructive change, and religion in the life of society. I just mentioned briefly a document released two years ago and written by three individual Baha'is. I know they've now published it as a book. I don't have time to summarize it here, but I, I believe the, uh, one of the authors, Arthur Dahl, um, is, is the speaker ne at next week's fireside. Salim, you wanted to make a brief comment about that? Just very, very briefly. I actually, I think Arthur is with us this evening as well, so he can say much more about the, this general uh, uh, topic than, than, than I, I can. But it's just very interesting that there are a number of Baha'is who are at work in different parts of the international system and the international community. I think to to amplify what the Baha'is are doing formally and officially uh, in, in I think representing and, and uh, promoting many of the same principles so it's just it's a very interesting area of work that a lot of people are pursuing. Thank you so I'd like to close now by referring to two documents published in the last month one by the Economist, Economist magazine and one by the Baha'i International Communities UN office in New York. In a special report entitled Global Leadership Missing in Action the Economist magazine reviewed the history of the United Nations, starting with a meeting in the White House soon after Pearl Harbor, December 1941, between President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Roosevelt came up with the name for the New World Security Organization and was so eager to tell Churchill that he rushed into his bedroom only to find Churchill in his bathrobe. What is striking about the origins of the United Nations is Roosevelt's choice for the name of the new, new organization is not the unorthodox, unorthodox manner of communication. And as we know, if it was happening today, it would probably have been tweeted, but that in the midst of war, statesmen were already planning for the peace. So the report continues. are the UN and the collaborative global governance it embodies doomed to be less relevant in a world of great power competition. It is surely too soon to give up on them, but to retain its clout and character, the liberal order needs restored leadership and difficult reforms. The multilateral system has important strengths. One is that it is patently needed. The biggest problems cry out for international cooperation as the pandemic powerfully illustrates. The world needs to work together on vaccines, on economic recovery, and to support the most vulnerable countries. The head of the World Food Program, David Beasley, a former Republican governor of South Carolina, has said speedy action is necessary to prevent multiple famines of biblical proportions. Concerted efforts are also needed on climate change, another challenge no country can tackle on its own. The risk of nuclear proliferation is also growing. A second advantage is that, the UN, that is that the UN is popular. It has made shameful mistakes. It failed to prevent genocide in Rwanda and Srebrenica. UN peacekeepers are blamed for bringing cholera to Haiti and sexual abuse to many of the places they were meant to protect. The UN's oil for food program with Iraq led to a $1.8 billion scam. Yet it is more trusted than many governments according to the 2020 Edelman Trust Barometer. Across 32 countries surveyed by Pew last year, 
a media of 61% had a favorable opinion of the UN against 26% with an unfavorable view. A comfortable majority of Americans think well of it, though there is a growing partisan divide. 77% of Democrats approve, but only 36% of Republicans. The UN wants to use its 75th anniversary for a grand consultation on the future of multilateralism. COVID-19 has hijacked the global agenda, but it, is also, but it also creates an opportunity. Rather than destroying the system, the upheaval could spur countries into strengthening it. That will require planning for the future while tackling the crisis of the present. Today's leaders need to emulate what their predecessors achieved so magnificently in 1945. So finally, the statement released last month by the Baha'i International Community is available on the BIC.org website. The heading is 75 years later, time for the vision and commitment of another charter moment. So it's quite a long statement. Um, I just uh, read the, um, the last part of it. 75 years ago, leaders were able to combine a deep reassessment of global arrangements with practical achievable steps to build a more fitting order. Let leaders and diplomats today, bolstered by civil society engagement and the support of individuals around the world, channel that same spirit of common endeavor. In this way, let them contribute their share to a process of collective advancement worthy of being recognized as this generation's charter moment. World government is inevitable, according to the Baha'i writings. It's a matter of when and how. The UN will either collapse and be replaced, as with the League of Nations, or the charter will be substantially revised so that it has the necessary mandate. In a few months' time, in the autumn this year, there would have been an air of expectation around the gathering of world leaders at the General Assembly, but I'm not sure how much that will be diluted by the fact that it'll probably be a virtual meeting this year. Anyway, either way, another milestone in human history, in UN history, is going to be reached. And I would be very surprised if the BIC did not seize the opportunity to encourage further steps towards the new world order. Thank you.